Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. All right, well, uh, I'll start with a story. I was driving in a truck some years ago with a, an evangelical leader, not to name drop, kind of a, somebody pretty well known. And we were driving in the truck and he asked this question, so how are you doing? How many of you don't even know how to answer that question? Somebody asks that, you're like, I don't know, how am I doing? I'm doing good and bad, right? That's always the honest answer. I said, well, I said, well, you know, we're in a rough season. There's a lot going on. It's kind of complicated, but I'm sure it's gonna be over. And then as soon as we get through this season, everything's gonna be awesome. And have you ever thought like that? Well, it's bad now, but it's all gonna get better. Just wait. The older people chuckle because they know that doesn't ever happen. You young people are still hopeful. I'll pop that balloon for you. Um, we often think it's, it's a woeful time, but that's okay, we'll get through it and then it'll be a wonderful time. And the truth is, I, I told him this and he kind of chuckled and he said, well, yeah, I used to think that way, like I was junior varsity. And, uh, and I appreciated that. I said, well, how do you think now? He said, I used to think that there were good times and bad times. He said, now I think it's almost like parallel train tracks. Every season, moment, day, week of life has good and bad at the exact same time concurrently occurring. How many of you say that makes more sense with your life? You're like, my business is great, my marriage is not. My marriage is great, my business is not. Different things are on different tracks and there's good and bad happening all the time. And, and this was a great insight. And I remember thinking that explains it because Grace and I are different. I'm more the pessimist, right? So the woeful track, I'm very aware of that. Grace is more the optimist, the wonderful track. So if you come to us in our marriage early on, we've worked it all out now, we're fully healed and we don't have any issues, um, but we're praying for you all. But we're in that place where we hope you all get to. Nonetheless, Grace would come to me and I'd say, oh my gosh, here's all the painful struggles. Here's the hardship. Here's where we need God to show up. This is scary. I don't know how this is gonna work out. And she would say, oh, we're fine. Everything's great. God's gonna work it all out. Just go to sleep. He'll fix it by the morning, right? How many of you, you realize you're more the pessimist. You look at the woeful track, maybe even you're married to the optimist. They look at the wonderful track. And those of you who are on the wonderful track, you've got verses. We're more than conquerors in Christ. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. God works out all things for the good of those who love him. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, right? You people, you got four verses, they're all annoying. And that, those are you people, okay? Now, those of us that are on the woeful pessimist track would be like, yeah, things are good, but I'm sure it's about to get ruined, right? We're just those people. Now, what happens is we see the woeful and the wonderful all the time in life because God made the world, God loves us, God is at work in the world and the world is fallen and cursed and there really is Satan and demons. So there's always good and bad. And today we're gonna talk about these two tracks, the woeful and the wonderful. And they are concurrent and consistent in all seasons of life. And what we're gonna take this concept and do today, we're gonna apply it to the life of Jesus. And Jesus, for context, is in the final days of his life. He is literally days from being murdered by a crucifixion. And what's happening is the most woeful and the most wonderful thing in the history of the world. So I'd ask you today, what are the woeful things in your life? Scary, concerning, overwhelming, distressing, frustrating. What are the wonderful things in your life? the hope, the joy, the peace, the provision, the, the encouragement that you're receiving. Jesus is experiencing both of these at the same time. And he goes before us, sends the spirit to us so that we might follow in his example. We'll pick it up here. That life has two tracks, John chapter 12. Here is the Lord Jesus. Now is my soul troubled. Is that wonderful or woeful? That's woeful. My soul is troubled. How many of you, the problem, the pain, the perplexing situation is so great, your soul is weighed down. That's where Jesus is at. It's okay to be honest about the hard times. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, I just need to say everything's okay. Hey, you need to be as honest as Jesus. And he said, his soul was troubled, okay? My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Get me around this. 
He's praying, no, Father, get me through this. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. God speaks, God the Father. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So God the Father speaks. Jesus is there. The crowd is there. The crowd never gets it. The crowd never gets it. Same is true in our day. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Ooh, must be monsoon season. And they didn't get it. Others said an angel has spoken. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Jesus knows exactly what is happening and God is speaking so that others can be learning. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up, he's speaking of the cross there from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He continues, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Woeful. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law, right? We went to Bible college seminary, right? We went to Sunday school. We went to Hebrew private academy. And we heard from the law of the Old Testament that the Christ remains forever. If you are the Christ, how can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Oh, and while we're at it, who is the son of man? If you've been with us, he keeps telling him he's the son of man. Sometimes it's not that God hasn't spoken. It's that people aren't getting it. You ever met people like that? So is God. Jesus says, I am the son of man. Who are you? I'm the son of man. Who is the son of man? I'm the son of man. They're playing this who's on first routine for chapters of John's gospel. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Will you have the light? Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is in the final days of his life, heading toward his death. And these two tracks are being traversed by him simultaneously, woeful and wonderful. And this is how it works in your life, in my life. Let's look at the woeful track first. He is suffering emotionally, physically, and relationally. There are other ways that he suffers and we suffer, but here it is emotional. He says, my soul is troubled. One Bible commentator said, the verb is a strong one signifying shock, agitation, and even revulsion. How many of you, you've had those experiences? Something happens, you're in shock. You're in shock. You're in shock. You're agitated. You're really bothered. You're revulsed. You can't believe that this is in your life. I got off the phone with a dear friend of mine, one of my closest friends. Actually, I was texting with him yesterday and I was talking to him this week. A dad and a little girl go for bike rides together and Dad said, wait a second, honey, I'm gonna go back in the house and grab something. He came back out. She got, went out, got hit by a car and died. His little girl this week died in her daddy's arms. He watched her bleed out. I'm on the phone with this pastor friend of mine who I love. He's a wonderful guy. I've been through a lot of trauma. He's like, pray for me. I gotta go do the funeral. I gotta give some hope to the people. There are certain moments of life that it's okay to say, as Jesus said, my soul is troubled. Emotionally, I'm not doing okay today. I'm in shock. I I haven't worked this through yet, okay? Jesus Christ is fully aware of what it is to be shot in the soul, a woeful moment. It's okay to be emotional with God and it's okay to bring your emotions to God because Jesus is a God who is emotional and identifies and understands your emotions. He's suffering emotionally. Number two, he is suffering physically. It says, uh, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's young, he's healthy, he's in his 30s and he's gonna be crucified. He's suffering emotionally, he's suffering physically. Suffering physically. Some of you know what that's like. Your woeful track today may be emotional. Some of your woeful track today may be physical. You have pain, illness, injury, you have chronic suffering, you've got doctor's appointments or surgeries or you're battling cancer or you've got back problems and trouble sleeping, right? It's physical because sin has infected and affected all of creation. And he's also suffering relationally. He tells the people, I love you. And they say, we don't love you. I want a relationship. We really don't. I'm God, come to be your friend. They're like, we don't think you're telling the truth. Well, I'm gonna die for your sin. Well, we're gonna kill you to shut you up. Well, I'll come back and forgive you. 
there's no need, we're good people. We don't need that kind of forgiveness. He suffers relationally. Some of you know what it's like because you're in a woeful season emotionally and or physically. And then what compounds it is the suffering relationally. Gosh, I feel isolated, I feel alone, I feel abandoned, I feel betrayed. Nobody is walking this path with me. That's the Lord Jesus, it's woeful. And in the middle of it all, and this is a word to me, and I hope it's of an encouragement to you, Jesus finds ways to also have that be wonderful. To be wonderful. I'll give you six questions from Jesus' example. Number one, what is God's will for me? Jesus says, for this purpose, I have come. Now, the woeful is, you're gonna kill me. The wonderful is, this is God's destiny for me. This is God's will for me. This is God the Father's purpose for me. The most important thing you and I can do, especially in a difficult season, is determine and discern what is God's will for us. Okay, God, what do you want? How do I deal with this? How do, what, what is this? Because Jesus says it would be nice or easy or simpler or common to pray, Father, deliver me. And instead he says, thy will be done. That's how Jesus always prays. Thy will be done. What is God's will for you? Some of you find yourself in a circumstance, you're like, I didn't wanna be here. I didn't wanna lose my job. I didn't wanna lose my spouse. I didn't wanna lose my health, but it's, I'm there. So God, what is your will for me? How can I walk in your will? How can I walk in your will? Number two, uh, how can I glorify God? Jesus asks um, how he can glorify God. And the father says, um, I will glorify my name. And Jesus asks that he could glorify the father's name. Here's what happens when we are suffering. I love you. I'm your pastor, okay? I need to help you understand suffering because part of my job is to get you ready for all of life and life has suffering. I am aware of this in my own life and I've witnessed this in other people's lives. Sometimes people who are suffering are very selfish. They're very selfish. They think that they're the only person that is hurting and or they have earned the right to rebel against God. Okay. I talked to somebody recently, they're in a season of rebellion after a season of suffering. I said, what are you doing? They said, I feel like God owes me. Oh. To glorify God is to be in the midst of the circumstance and to reflect something of the character of God. See, we have a statement in our culture. We say, you do you, right? No, for the Christian, we don't reflect ourselves. We reflect the God who made us and loves us. So this concept of glorifying, um, it goes all the way back to the first chapters of the Bible where it says that God made man and woman in his image and likeness. That concept of imaging or mirroring or reflecting, it's intricately tied to the concept of glorifying. The Bible says, I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, it's an old statement among Christians, says that the chief end of man is to glorify God. So this is a major theme of your Bible and a major theme of church history. What does it mean? Let me make it really practical as God's image bears. When you woke up this morning, you got up and looked in a, a mirror. For some of us, that was a catastrophic moment. It's like, wow, wow. I cannot wait till the resurrection of the dead, you know, when I get my glorified body. That's gonna be amazing, right? So you look in the mirror and what do you see? Your reflection. God made you to be his mirror. That's what it means to glorify God. To be God's image bearer is to reflect God's image. And the reflecting of God's image is how we glorify God. Here's what this means. Hardship comes and you use it to grow your relationship with God. Somebody asks, why do you do that? Because that's what Jesus did. Somebody sins against you and you forgive them. Why do you forgive them? Because I sinned against God and Jesus forgave me. Why, why do you love them? Because Jesus loves me. Why are you generous toward them? Because God so loved the world that he gave me his only son. The way that we are to live is to ask ourselves, 
What is the character of God? And how now in this moment, particularly a woeful moment, how can I reflect that? How can I show others something of the character of the God who loves me, whose name is Jesus? How many of you, you know someone who loves Jesus and has found themselves in a woeful season and you see the way they're responding and it's unbelievable. It's supernatural. They're not denying reality. They're absolutely dealing with reality. But their response is not from themselves. It is from their understanding of the character of God. How many of you have seen someone in the worst time have the best witness? That's in asking that question, how can I glorify God? And so Jesus in this moment is going to glorify God through his woeful experience of murder. Number three, what is God revealing to me? So Jesus is in this woeful moment and something wonderful happens. God the Father reveals to him and those present that all of this is for his glory and ultimately for our good. Here's what happens when you're in a woeful time, wonderful things are revealed to you. How many of you, you've gone through suffering and it was a school that you attended where you learned things about God that you would have never learned from any other school you attended. This is why people who love God, they'll say, it was the worst day of my life. I did not want it. I wouldn't wish it on my enemy, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because in it, God revealed things to me regarding himself and his affection for me that I otherwise did not know. And that's the testimony of the believer. Um, A lot of the sermon gets made up while I'm standing here. It hit me at the nine and I'll share it with you. It just does, I verbal process. So it goes good or it goes bad, but it goes. And and I was standing here at the nine and God reminded me of something. I was right in this area of our church a few weeks ago and my phone rang and it was a pastor whom I love and hold in the highest regard. And they almost died recently. I mean, literally they may have been clinically dead. And he called to check in. And I hadn't talked to him since this traumatic incident because I didn't want to bother him. But he called to check in. And, uh, and he wishes us a happy birthday, by the way. And um, I said, it is so good to hear from you. I didn't know if I'd ever hear from you again until we are together in the presence of the Lord Jesus. I said, uh, what was it like to, to be sort of teetering on the precipice of death, maybe clinically dead. He said, uh, and I don't wanna put words in his mouth. He said, I was really looking forward to seeing Jesus. I've never been this close to death, right? When you get there and you peer over the edge, is it, rut row? I mean, is it, is it, you know, like, is, it, is it good or bad, you know? He's like, it's amazing. He said, I knew that if I went, that God would take care of my wife and my kids and my grandkids and that I would miss them. He said, but I was so looking forward to seeing Jesus and being with Jesus. He said, so I asked the Lord, is it my time? And I don't wanna speak on his behalf, just summarizing the conversation. But he said, uh, the Lord spoke to me and said, it is not your time. And he said, so I, I accepted that. He said, but honestly, it grieved me a bit that it wasn't quite time to be with Jesus forever. He said, but, but being on the brink, I know it's wonderful. I said, well, I'm so sorry for what you've been through, but I'm so grateful that God revealed that to you because that's a great encouragement and hope to me, okay? Some of you would say, I've been through hardship in my life and some of it may have been self-inflicted or self-induced. And what I would say is in those seasons, even if they are self-inflicted, God loves you, God will speak to you, God will reveal himself to you, and he'll teach you things that you could have not learned in any other way. So the question is, God, what are you teaching me? God, what are you teaching me? What are you teaching me? And uh, number four, where is the enemy lurking? Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's talking about Satan and demons. Everywhere that people are suffering, Satan is lurking. You need to know that. Because when you are suffering, you are more susceptible. 
you're, you're like a soldier in battle that has been wounded and now you are in a vulnerable position and place. And what Jesus is saying is this is a woeful thing because Satan is at work. And we know that he is going to fill, enter, control Judas Iscariot. He's going to become not just demon possessed, but devil possessed to betray and murder Jesus. That is woeful. And Jesus says, but this is going to be wonderful because I'm aware of Satan's work. And as a result of standing with the father in the spirit and fighting against him, we will defeat the enemy. Let me say this, the most painful times are the most possible times to start to blame God for things that Satan is doing. Here's what happens. Sometimes when we are suffering, all we think about is us and God, okay? Not Satan and demons. So when you get hit with something, it's like, God, why would you do this? And what some people will do, they'll either go to God contempt, God, you don't exist, or God, you're evil, or God, you're mean, or God, you're cruel. Or we go to self-contempt. What have I done to deserve this? Meanwhile, Satan is lurking and Satan is laughing. I attack them and now they're gonna attack God and attack themselves. And they forgot that I exist and that I work. Never forget, it was some years ago, we were in Central Oregon as a family with the grandparents and playing and all that and riding bikes and swimming in the pool. And I'll never forget, there's certain moments in your life, they're just frozen in time. And there was a dear woman that we love very much, friend of Grace's and new Christian. And something catastrophic hit her life. And I won't mention it, it was a horrific evil. And she was so distraught, she knew we were on vacation, she called. Pastor Mark, I'm sorry, I just need to talk. Okay, we love you, what, what happened? She tells me the terrible tale. And I said, okay, what can I answer? What question can I answer? She said, why would God do this to me? I literally started weeping on the phone. I remember I was on the back deck. I took the call outside so that the kids would not overhear. And I said, God is a good father. God is not evil, he's good. What happened is evil, God doesn't do that. I said, now what Satan wants to do, he wants to do evil and then he wants you to blame God so that, so that you are fighting with God rather than standing with God to fight against him, okay? If you think that God is evil, when you're suffering, is God the person you're going to run to or run from? Run from. And that's a demonic lie. So Jesus says, it's woeful, Satan is at work, but it's wonderful, we're going to defeat him because we acknowledge and understand his working. Number five, who can I teach? They come to him and they say, we have heard that the Christ lives forever. They are partly correct, partly incorrect. Jesus comes to them and says, I am the Christ, the anointed, the chosen one, the one you've all been waiting for and I'm going to die for your sin. And they say, well, that's confusing because we were taught, right? From our Bible teacher that the Christ lives forever. Is that true? It's true. The Christ does live forever after he dies and rises, then he lives forever. So they got the, he lives forever. They miss the, he dies and rises part. So this is an opportunity for Jesus to instruct, teach, correct them. Let me say this to you. When you are suffering, God can be teaching more than you've ever learned. And then there are others who are confused and you now have a credibility to teach them what God has taught you, okay? How many of you, there are things that you've been through and God has taught you things. And as you just say it, other people say, that's unbelievable, I didn't know that, where did you? Learn that, I've never heard that. I was confused, I didn't even know that I didn't know that. See, that came through time with the Lord in a woeful season. You have an opportunity to take everything that you are learning and not only to benefit yourself, but to lovingly, humbly share it with others. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They're saying, here's what we think. And he's like, okay, I gotta teach you some things. We gotta correct this. And let me say this, people that are suffering have a higher degree of credibility, right? Because they are 
proving what they've been learning. They're proving what they've been learning. And number six, where has God provided light? How many of you, when you were a kid, you were scared of the dark? Any of you raised kids? They're all scared of the dark. What a good parent does, or a good grandparent does, put a, put a light in the room. And even if the whole room is dark, just the presence of that light gives them comfort. You need to know that this world is a dark place, that the children of God should all be afraid, and Jesus comes as the light of the world. And here's how the Lord Jesus says it. Um, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Will you have light? Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is where Christians and non-Christians just completely fundamentally disagree. Non-Christians will say, we're good and getting better. We're light and getting brighter. And Christians will say, no, it's dark and getting darker. We're bad and getting worse. Amen? This is, so for the non-Christian, they're like, give it time. And we're like, oh no, 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 no. I don't believe in evolution, maybe devolution. We didn't start as monkeys, but that's where we're trending. Amen? <laughs> that's how it's going, okay? And this concept of light means in your life, when the woeful seasons come, the, the, the mood is darkness. It's darkness. It's getting dark. Things are getting dark. It's scary, it's uncertain, can't see. What Jesus says is follow the light and that'll get you safely home. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, When I was a little boy, we moved, I was 10, 11, 12, something like that, late elementary school. But the first house that we were in, in our neighborhood, there were a ton of kids, a lot of kids. We lived near an elementary school. And us boys, we'd all get on our bikes and we'd all meet down in this one sort of part of the neighborhood. And then we'd go, you know, what are we doing? Playing baseball, playing football, playing basketball. Uh, What are we doing? We'd figure out what we're doing. And we'd just like a pack of boys, we'd go figure out what to do. We got together this one day. Okay, guys, what are we doing today? It's probably a summer day. And one of the boys said, uh, hey, my friend said, you know, a couple neighborhoods over, place we'd not been, there's a woods. And in the woods, those kids built a bunch of jumps and bike ramps. Well, that's the love language of every little boy's bike ramp. And so, uh, well, this sounds like a great, let's, who, who's in, let's go. So we all get on our bikes. We didn't pray about it or tell our parents. We just got on our bikes and we headed toward this woods in this other neighborhood, hoping to find it and find the bike ramps. So we finally found this woods because we asked some other kids along the way. And we got there, lo and behold, there were jumps and bike ramps and woohoo. Next thing we know, we're having a great time. And then we noticed there's a few bike trails that go into the woods. Well, let's, hey guys, let's go. So we go deeper into the woods, get to the end of the woods. Can't take your bike, it's a winding path. It's narrow, we're wondering where does this go? So we drop the bikes and as boys do, we run headlong into the woods. Next thing you know, we're in the middle of some woods in some neighborhood, we have no idea where we're at. And it's nighttime, the sun's setting, it's dark. Well, the valedictorian among us, he says, hey, it's getting dark. All right, so so thank you, valedictorian, for precious insight. One of the kids asks, okay, it's getting really dark. We look up and there's tall trees, there's very little light, and the light is almost gone for the day. It's total darkness. We're in the middle of the woods, far away from home. What do we do? We have our little quick committee meeting. And uh, one of the kids says, uh, well, it's dark over there and there's still some light over there. Let's go there. Okay, that's, that's a good plan. You can either run into the darkness or the light and there's not much light, but let's chase the light and see where it takes us. So at this point, we're scared little boys. So now we're running, chasing the sunset. And in God's grace, we exited the woods before complete darkness fell. The moral of the story is chase the light and you'll find your way home. That this world is a dark place. And for you, it is asking even in those dark and woeful seasons, where has God given us the wonderful provision of some light? Say, well, I know some Christians, get to them. 
Uh, I got a copy of the Bible somewhere, find it. Um, I know some people who will pray, ask them. I know a church to join, do so. A while ago, God told me to do something and I never took that step. He put a little light in front of me and I didn't take that step. Well then take that step and then take the next step and just keep chasing the light. That's what it means to walk with God. In the most woeful seasons, God brings people, opportunities, provision, presence, instruction, direction, correction. And some would ask, how in the world do you get out of that dark woods? I have no idea. All I know is God wonderfully showed up and he illuminated a path that got me safely home. The question, my friend, is are you traveling on a woeful path? As the darkness has come, are you running into the darkness? Uh, Jesus asked this essential question. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He knew not only the Lord's will, but the Lord's timing and he's waiting. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still not believe in him. Some people say, well, if God would show up, he did. And many didn't believe. Well, if God would just do a miracle, he did many and many did not believe in him. Let me say this, God is still active, still saying and doing things and lots of people are not responding to him. Some people will say, you know, it doesn't seem like God's at work anymore or we're not listening or we're not seeing. How many of you, there's somebody in your life, you love them, you speak to them and you serve them and they're not acknowledging any of that. God feels like that all the time. They still do not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years prior, this Old Testament prophet Isaiah promised this situation Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let me just hit this real quick. It's one of my favorite images in the whole Bible. The arm of the Lord been revealed. How many of you have got a kid? Got a little one? My kids are big now. When my kids were little, they'd hold my hand. I'm down to one kid that'll hold my hand. So emotionally, I'm not doing so well. Pray for me, okay? The main reason my sons won't hold my hand is because we've changed positions. I used to be up here and they used to be down there and now they're up there and I feel weird doing this. So um, that's where we're at at the Driscoll house. But when my kids were little, let's say we're going to a place where it's packed with people or it's nighttime or it's maybe unsafe or we're traveling in the airport or something of that nature. What I would do, I wouldn't tell my kids Here's everything you need to do. Here's the schedule for the whole day. Go left, go right. I didn't give them directions. I gave them my hand. I would reach down. That's like, just hold your dad's hand. You don't have to see everything. I see it. You don't have to know where we're going. I know where we're going. You don't have to worry about all the complex variables. You just need to walk with your dad. The picture here of Jesus is that God the Father sends God the Son as the hand of God to take the hand of each child of God and walk them safely home. I love this image. Some of you are like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Here's what it means, this. I am with Jesus and he's gonna get me to the Father. I'll be okay as long as I just hold on to Jesus' hand. He knows where we're going. He knows what he's doing, amen? Um, the Lord, Lord who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. He's talking about those who do not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. We'll talk about that. Hardened their hearts. Talk about that. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, just briefly, I didn't, hit at the first service, but in Isaiah six, it says, I saw the heavens open and I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne and surrounded by angels who were crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. Everybody's wondering who's that? John says, that was my friend, Jesus. Jesus ruled and reigned as a worshiped king on a throne for all eternity as revealed in Isaiah six. And now he is my friend Jesus walking around on the earth. 
Nevertheless, many, even the authorities believed in him. Some believed, some disbelieved. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man. Social media followers, promotion at work, tenure at the university, friendship at the country club, nothing awkward at the holidays with the family who doesn't like Jesus. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There are two kinds of people here that are on a woeful track. I'll first deal with the unsaved and unscared, and then the saved and scared. The unsaved and the unscared, there are people there. Jesus says, I'm God. No, you're not. I'm here to forgive your sin. We're not sinners. I'm here to help. We don't need any help. Okay, we still do this, amen? We still do this. And what it says is, John 12, 40, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Okay, you read that carefully. Does that bother you? Who, let's just read it. Who? He, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Let me just admit the obvious. This, this sounds a little cruel. This is like a parent looks at a child and says, spill your milk. And they spill their milk. And then the parent spanks them for spilling their milk. If you made it happen, how can you punish them for what you made them do? Amen? This is important because what we're talking about here is the character of God. Is God good or bad? Is God capricious or is he compassionate? Um, let me deal with this. So the season that they're in is Passover. The week that they're in is Passover. The reason they're all at Jerusalem is the Passover. The Passover comes from, for those of you who are more nerds like me, what book of the Bible? Exodus. Exodus. In Exodus, that's when the Passover celebration was begun. So all week, they're reading Exodus. All week, they're studying Exodus. All week, they're Bible teachers, and thank you for letting me teach you the Bible. They're all teaching Exodus. And the story of Exodus is this, there are God's people and they're to be ruled over by God, but someone else is ruling over them and he thinks he's God. His name is the Pharaoh. We can look at the Pharaoh and say, that guy has a problem, or we could say, we're all like the Pharaoh. We all want to live as the God or Lord or highest authority over our life. Well, if that works for you, that's fine. Doesn't work for me. I think I'm fine. I'm good. This is my life. It's an issue of authority. Is God in charge or are we in charge? The Pharaoh said, God's not in charge. I'm in charge. In fact, I'm my own God. What happens then, God lovingly, because he not only loves his people, he loves the Pharaoh and all the people that are with the Pharaoh. He raises up a guy named Moses. And he tells Moses, on my behalf, go speak to the Pharaoh. And summarizing, when Moses deals with the Pharaoh, it says in Exodus on numerous occasions that Pharaoh had a hard heart. It says frequently that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what Jesus is saying is what they would have been learning that week. And what he's telling them is, you moral, spiritual, devout, church-going, religious people, your hearts are like Pharaoh's. Now, for us who are church-going, perhaps moral, devout, spiritual people, that's, that, okay, so I'm like Pharaoh? Yes. When I first read that, in the Bible that Grace gave me and I became a Christian reading, the God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I thought, what, is, what does that mean? How many of you have been Christians a while and you've had a debate about this? Right now, somewhere on a Bible college campus, there are two white guys that are ready to punch each other arguing over this issue, okay? This is a big debate. As I read it in the Exodus, depending upon what English translation of the Bible you use, it'll speak of Pharaoh's heart about 19 times. About half of the time, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart 
And about half of the time, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Question, which is it? Answer, yes. Okay. Okay, let me say this carefully. God did harden Pharaoh's heart in the same way here that Jesus is hardening the Pharisee's heart. How does he do it? Love, grace, compassion, mercy, patience. In that moment, not only was Pharaoh's heart revealed, so was God's. In this moment, not only are the Pharisees' hearts revealed, so is God's, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how the story works in Exodus. Moses comes to the Pharaoh. Um, Pharaoh, the real God, says that some things need to change. Will you tell him I'm the real God and he needs to change? Okay. God waits a while because he's patient. Moses, go again. Look, not only does the real God say that he loves you, he also loves these people that you're hurting and he'll forgive you and you need to let these people go and he'll love everybody. No, those are my people, not his. Over and over and over and over, Moses comes and says, the real God's a loving God, the real God's a forgiving God, the real God's a relational God, the real God's a patient God. But just to let you know that he really is the real God, he's gonna send some plagues, some consequences, some pain points in your life. And each one's gonna get a little more painful, but at any point, you could change your heart. And at every point, Pharaoh hardens his heart. <clears throat> and it is the presence of God's love. It is the presence of God's mercy. It is the presence of God's patience. It is the presence of God's invitation, the relationship that hardens Pharaoh's heart. True or false, we've seen this so far, if you've been with me in the story of John. Jesus keeps coming, I'm God. No, you're not. I love you. We don't love you. I'll forgive you. We don't need to be forgiven. Not only is Pharaoh's heart revealed, so is God's. Here, not only is the Pharisee's heart revealed, so is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the question is, does God harden people's hearts? Yes, he does. But here's what's really important. How does he do it? By loving, by being kind, by being patient, by extending his hand for relationship. How many of you, let me, let me turn it, look at it from God's perspective. How many of you, there is someone that hates you. Anything you do toward them is going to cause them to hate you more. You're like, I love you. Shut up, you're not allowed to say that. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry, you're not sorry. Okay. Um, what can I do? Die. Uh, okay. You know, like, uh, Everything you do to try to have a relationship with them causes them to sort of entrench themselves in their position of war against you. Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then as God loves him, it causes his heart to become even harder. But that is Pharaoh's fault. That is not God's fault. It's where Jesus says, if today you hear his voice, I've been praying this for you all week, so I love you. Harden not your heart. Right? Some of you, your heart is hard toward God. You could change that. You could change that. Some of your heart is hard toward God because of a dark season, a woeful season. Make it a wonderful season and have a heart change. The old Puritans, there were some Christians that lived a long time ago. They said, uh, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Let's say it's uh, winter time and you take a hike up to Flagstaff and you're up near the top, near the snow bowl. Let's say over here, there's a pile of snow and ice and over here there is the red clay. The sun comes out and it's beating down. What happens to the ice? 
It melts. What happens to the clay? It bakes and hardens. All that happens when God shines Jesus Christ, the light of the world upon our hearts, the soft hearts melt, the hard hearts harden. That's how God hardens hearts. We harden our hearts and then he exposes our hard hearts through his love. How's your heart toward God today? Some of you know people and they, they don't love Jesus, but you love Jesus and you love them. The issue really is one of the heart. Some people have heard about Jesus and what they have done is they've closed their eyes. They've, they've chosen blindness. Look at who Jesus is. Look at what Jesus does. I don't see a thing. That is closing of the eyes so that there is an intentional spiritual blindness to intentionally overlook all that God has revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I've been praying for you all week. If your eyes are closed, that they'd open to Jesus. If your heart is hard, that it'd be tender toward Jesus. These are the people that are unsaved and they're unscared. They're not worried about it. They're not okay. In addition, in the story, there are also those who are saved and they're scared. They're similarly walking on that woeful path. Um, you can read it here. Let me, let, me, let me do this. Let me just pray. Father God, I pray for those who are here or hearing this. Holy Spirit, for those whose eyes have been closed because they know what you say, but they don't love what you say, would you allow them to open their eyes and see the love that Jesus has for them? God, for those whose hearts are hard, maybe it's become hardened because of pain and circumstance and suffering. Lord Jesus, I pray that the enemy would not get a victory, but instead their hearts would cease being hard and they'd start to become soft, that that which was hardening and baking would be soft and melting. Um, Lord Jesus, for those right now that they know that their heart is not in a good place toward you, Lord, I just, I ask that they would harden not their hearts and that today you would hear, they rather would hear your voice, the voice that says, I love you, I forgive you, I'm not done with you, I have hope for you, I have a future for you, I died for you and I'll live with you. God, I pray for a heart change for those who need it. And I pray that they would take ownership of the condition of their own heart that they would not blame others or circumstances, but that instead, like the Lord Jesus, their heart would be tender toward the Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Um, I love you. I want good for you. I don't want anybody to leave here with their eyes closed and their heart hard. I want everybody to leave here with their eyes open, their heart tender. Uh, and there are some in this story that are saved and they're scared. Some of you are like that. They're like, I'm a Christian, but I don't tell anybody because my family will yell at me or my coworkers will demote me or if I put it on social media, it's just a prison riot, amen? We live in a day that if you wave the I believe in Jesus and the Bible flag, there's not a lot of social benefits, amen? There was a day when Christianity held during what a season I'll call Christendom, a privileged position that you were respected. So if you wanna be a good member of the society, you go to church, you get baptized, get married in the church, take communion. And if you're running for political office, you say, I'm a Christian, even if you're not, because that means you're a good citizen. Things have changed, right? The music stopped playing and the church lost a seat in the musical chairs game. We're now on the out. That is nothing new. That's where Christianity has always flourished on the margins. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Some people, their eyes were open and their heart was turned like, we love Jesus, but we're not telling anybody. For fear of the religious leaders, they did not confess it. They did not wanna be kicked out of their relational networks. They wanted everybody to say nice thing about them and they forgot to live for God's approval. Now, perhaps more than ever in our nation's history, in our Western culture's history, you have got to decide if Jesus is willing to identify with me, I need to be willing to identify with him. If Jesus is willing to suffer to have a relationship with me, I need to be willing to suffer to have a relationship with him. This is why I don't believe in a private faith. I believe in a private faith that has public expression. That's why we have communion. It's your way every week of saying, I'm on team Jesus. 
It's why we do baptism. It's your way of saying, I'm on team Jesus. And there will be a price to pay, family, work, whatever the case may be. And we don't wanna be arrogant about that, but we need to be aware of that. I'll, I'll give you a story, give you an analogy. Let's say this is home plate, okay? Just pretend this is home plate. My first trip to ever play baseball outside of my hometown, they sent us to Canada. So, you know, we weren't a very good team, but we went to Canada and I was a catcher because when you're already halfway to the ground, they're like, let's, let's put that kid in the catcher, halfway there, make it easy on that kid. So I was the catcher and, uh, and I'm good at blocking things. And so I'm the catcher and then the game is tied. It's late in the innings. I think maybe bases are full and they bring me in as the relief pitcher, okay? And, and I'm thinking, oh boy. So I'm warming up and I'm nervous. And then this kid, I look over in the batter's box and there's this kid coming up the bat. This kid is horrible, okay? This kid, this kid could not, if he held the correct end of the bat, it was a win for him. I saw this kid play. I was like, this, this is a good day for me. This kid, this kid is not an athlete. He cannot swing a bat, this is awesome. So the kid gets up to bat, base is loaded. So if here's the plate, the kid literally put his toes on the plate. He squatted his knees and he leaned over the plate like this. Now he's in the strike zone, okay? And I'm thinking, what the heck is this kid doing? I hear all the other kids in the dugout, take one for the team, take one for the team, take one for the team. This kid knows I will never get a hit, but maybe I can get hit. That's his hope, okay? That's his hope. So maybe he's a Christian kid. He's got a lot of faith and he's gonna exercise it publicly. So he is literally covering the entire strike zone with his body. I threw a pitch outside. He, went, he fell down trying to get hit by the pitch. Here's what I'm saying. <laughs> Don't be Canadian. Oh, no, that's what I'm saying. Um, so uh, what I'm saying is, how we could tell the Canadian visitor like, hey, Hey, we know, we know. Um, <laughs> what I'm saying is sometimes you gotta take one for the team. And if you're on team Jesus, you know, you're at work and they're like, we hate Christians. You're like, I have bad news and good news. I'm a Christian. The good news is we forgive people who say horrible things, right? Okay. Somet and what is happening here, there are those who don't belong to Jesus and there are those who do belong to Jesus, but they don't want anyone to know they belong to Jesus. And that doesn't help team Jesus. Next question, are you traveling on the wonderful track? Jesus cried out, he's emotional about this. He's passionate, he's excited, this matters. Whoever believes in me, who, whoever, what does that mean? You and you and you, you can all believe in Jesus. The invitation goes out, Jesus is like, I love you, I'll forgive you, I'll have a relationship with you, I'll take you into my eternal kingdom. Well, I've done bad things, well, whoever. Well, I've lived an independent life, well, whoever. I was in a different religion, well, whoever. Well, I've wasted many years, well, whoever. Well, I've got secret sin and hidden life, well, whoever. This is what's awesome. Jesus invites anybody and everybody, whoever, believes in me, do you believe in Jesus? That's the big question, do you believe in Jesus? Believes not in me, but also in him who sent me and whoever sees me. Are you opening your eyes today? Jesus is God, Jesus said he was God. Jesus came to the earth. Jesus proved that he was God. Sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light. So that whoever, there it is again, whoever, anybody believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words, does not keep them, I. Do not judge him for I did not come to the world to judge. He's gonna judge on the second coming, but he comes to save on the first coming, but to save the world. He continues, the one who rejects me. Some of you say, I don't reject Jesus, I'm indifferent. That's just a different form of rejection. If I come up to you and say, I love you and I'd like to have a relationship, you say, I have no response. That is a response. That's a decline of my invitation to a relationship. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who has sent me has given himself to me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore is what the father has told me. Jesus absolutely 
bottom lines all of human history. I am God, you are a sinner. I am here to forgive your sin and to have a relationship. The answer is yes or hell, that's it, okay? Whoever believes this is on team Jesus. Now, by way of context, Jesus is right on the brink of his crucifixion. He's just about to die. And I'll remind you of what he said a little bit earlier, and we'll talk about the cross in closing. Um, Chapter 12, verses, I think it's 32 and 33. There's the woeful track. We're gonna murder God. There's the wonderful track. God's gonna save us. Here's what Jesus had told us. When I am lifted up from the earth, what's that? It's his cross, his crucifixion. This is why Christianity has always been about the cross, right? If you're driving by on Highway 101 and you look over, what do you see atop our building? A cross, we lit it up at night for a reason. It's the symbol of God's people. Out front, there's an old cross. It was the original cross on top of the building. When we did work behind the kids' building, it was covered in weeds. So we pulled up the old cross and we planted it out front so that if you drive by, you see it. And if you pull up, you see it. And when you walk in, what do you see? Another cross. It's a huge wooden cross. It's been in this building for more than 50 years. Uh, The first church that was here, they chose that wood because it is the oldest living thing on the earth. It's, they would say, and I read it in a National Geographic article, is it's a bristlecone pine. That cross started as a tree that started growing when Abraham walked the earth. And they wanted it to be the size to remind us of the suffering of Jesus. And they wanted it to be symbolic that the oldest thing on earth is nothing compared to the eternal life that God gives. So if you drive by, you're gonna see a cross. If you walk up, you're gonna see a cross. If you come in, you're gonna see another cross. The moral of the story is we believe in the cross, okay? And that the early Christians had to decide what is the symbol of our faith going to be? Starting with the early church father Tertullian, they chose the sign of the cross. Christians started making the sign of the cross. They started um, wearing the cross. They started putting the cross on their home, which meant Jesus' people live here. They're putting crosses on their church that Jesus' people meet here. Jesus is saying here, when I'm lifted up from the earth, the cross, I'll draw all people to myself. Is that wonderful or woeful? That's wonderful. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That is woeful. That is woeful. The most woeful thing in the history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The most wonderful thing in the history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And you and I, we tend not to think much about crucifixion because we don't see it. It still happens on occasion with Islamist nations that are extremists. But in Jesus' day, it was state-sponsored terrorism. It was the government's way of saying what they believed or how they behaved, do not follow in their example or you will endure their fate. And so they would crucify people starting all the way back with the Persians 800 years before Christ. It is believed that they invented crucifixion. They would take basically a long pole, sharpen the edge, and then the soldiers would run it through a man so that he was impaled. They would dig a hole in the ground. They would drop the impaled uh, spike into the ground. And then the man literally for days would be convulsing and slowly bleeding and dying. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans perfected it. The soldiers would have different competitions to see which one could inflict the most pain. They landed on nailing through the most sensitive nerve centers of the human body, the hands and the feet, the victim. And then they would lift them up and they would drop that cross into a hole so that they could be high and lifted up. And you need to know that this was common. There was an uprising when perhaps Jesus was a little boy and he may have even seen a mass crucifixion. And I wonder as a little boy, if he thought that is my fate. 
On the day that Spartacus fell in battle, 6,000 men were crucified along a 120 mile stretch of highway. Imagine today you got in your car and you went to take a a bit of respite up in Flagstaff and there were 6,000 men crucified along the shoulder of the highway, bleeding, screaming, weeping, dying, while their families are present mourning. An old hymn calls it the emblem of suffering and shame. Josephus, the ancient Jewish scholar and historian called it the most wretched of deaths. They wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens and Cicero said that Roman citizens shouldn't even speak of it. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And Paul in Galatians quotes and says, that's what we did to the Lord Jesus. And my friends, this was done publicly. Uh, This week as a family, we went to an outdoor food court and there was a splash pad. And that was the kind of place that they would crucify a man. They would pick an unexpected, public, highly trafficked place. So if you're a mom like, hey kids, get your swimsuit on. We're gonna go get a burger and get cold stone. You can play in the splash pad. What the? That man is crucified at the food court. And it was the state's way of saying, do not believe what they believe. Do not behave as they behaved. Let me tell you, if Jesus didn't rise from death, nobody would be following him. What happens at the cross of Jesus is the most woeful thing happens, and that is the revelation of the hardened human heart against God. And at the cross of Jesus, the most wonderful thing happens, the revelation of the tender heart of God. The cross is where not only is God revealed, but so are we. And what happens at the cross of Jesus, the woeful and the wonderful, they come together. And my dear friends, I have good news for you. I'll form it as a question. Which wins? The woeful? Does the woeful conquer and defeat the wonderful? Or does the wonderful conquer and defeat the woeful? The wonderful love of God defeats and conquers the woeful sin of humanity. And at this point, that, and, and I wanna give you hope because right now in your life, there is woeful and there is wonderful. At this point in Jesus' life, it is woeful and it is wonderful and he continues forward. I need you to continue forward by faith in relationship with the Lord Jesus. And I have good news for you that eventually in God's time, all that is woeful becomes wonderful. And that is the hope of the child of God. And that is the path that is forged by the Lord Jesus. I need you to have hope. I need you to have encouragement. I need you to run toward the light. I need you to have your eyes open. I need you to have your heart tender toward Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come now to respond in worship. Lord Jesus, as we partake of communion, we remember the cross. We remember your broken body and shed blood in our place for our sins. Lord God, as we partake of communion, we're standing up publicly and we're identifying ourselves with the Lord Jesus. We're saying, yes, he lived for me. Yes, he died for me. And because of a heart change, we can have a relationship. Lord, for those that are here and they don't know you, I pray that their eyes would open and they would see Jesus as God. For those who are here and their heart is hard, I pray it would become soft toward Jesus as God. And Lord God, for those that this is a dark season, I pray they would run toward the light. For those who are in a woeful moment, I pray that they would find ways as the Lord Jesus did to make it a wonderful moment. And Lord God, we thank you that when all is said and done, Everyone and everything ends up at Jesus. And Lord Jesus, for those of us who believe in you and belong to you, we're gonna see all that is woeful become wonderful. We're gonna see the woeful go away forever and the wonderful to be all that remains. And so until we see it, give us faith to believe it. Give us faith to continue to press forward as the Lord Jesus did. 
And Lord Jesus, if you are not ashamed to identify with us, we are not ashamed to identify with you. And Lord God, I pray for this moment right now that the Holy Spirit would open eyes and change hearts so that we could worship and enjoy Jesus. And Lord Jesus, just remind us of your cross. Remind us of your death that brought us life. Remind us of the most woeful moment that did the most wonderful thing. And we thank you so much. It's all we have, but it's all we need because you've done all the work. And we just say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please join us at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. You can also watch Pastor Mark live on Sundays, YouTube, Facebook, the app, or at markdriscoll.org. And as Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus.